Hebrews chapter 12 this morning, if you would. Let me mention while you're turning there that today we finish a campaign called 40 Days for Life. We do that every fall, every spring, along with other churches in our city and other churches around the nation. Today is the, the final day of the 40 days in the fall. I want to tell you that in the city of Little Rock, we know of three uh, babies who were saved, and nationwide, 473 babies that were spared that have life because of people like you who joined us and, and prayed. And to those of you who did that, I want to thank you for your uh, work and your effort in that. For those of you that don't know, we were praying uh, the 40 days this fall outside of the new Planned Parenthood facility and uh, just looking for opportunity to uh, pray that God would be glorified, that babies would be saved, and, and at times to be able to engage some of those who are there. By the way, this afternoon at 5 o'clock in the city center, which is the old Kroger building next to Emanuel over in West Little Rock, Dr. Hayward Robinson, a former abortionist, is going to be speaking there for the closing celebration of 40 days. And whether you participated or not, you're certainly welcome and invited to come and hear him. Well, last week in Hebrews 6, you remember that the Hebrew Christians were being encouraged. Uh, many of them were new believers, being encouraged to mature in their faith. Uh, they were a people who were facing uh, a great deal of persecution um, for following Jesus. And the writer knew that some of them would be tempted to turn away or to shrink back in doubt. Uh, I believe in the future, uh, maybe not the near future, but in the future that will happen to a great degree in the Western church, that there will be some who will turn away and shrink back when it becomes more difficult. Well, you remember the writer was uh, warning them. He had reminded them, look, you've, you've been enlightened with the truth. You have tasted the goodness of the Lord. You have uh, seen the Spirit at work and experienced His power, seen it displayed, but you're not following through on your commitment to Christ. You're forgetting all that God has done for them, and you're forgetting that He's called you to obedience and to faithfulness. You remember that some of them were in danger of, even as believers, of being hardened. They were in a position where the Lord would have to bring hardship or difficulty in their life in order to get them back on course. And you remember last week in chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, the illustration of the, the field or the plot of land. When the rain falls on it, it should be productive. It should produce a harvest. But he said that at times that same plot of land, instead of producing a harvest, might produce thorns and thistles and brambles that are absolutely worthless. And he said when that happens, the owner of that plot of land will set fire to the land. Fire can be discipline or judgment in Scripture. In this case, it's not judgment because the land is not destroyed, but as fire is set to that land to burn away all the unproductive, uh, unproductivity of that land, then it makes it more productive in the future. So, so the call last week to these Hebrew Christians, these immature Hebrew Christians, and the call to us is a call to faithful discipleship. It's a call to complete obedience. It's a call to a growing faith. It's a call to persevere. And this morning in chapter 12, we're going to look at another word of challenge and encouragement. Now, uh, I'm not actually jumping ahead today. I realize you just finished chapter 11 Friday. You start chapter 12 tomorrow. Those of you reading through the New Testament with us, I'm not actually jumping ahead today. Let me explain why. Uh, you know that when the New Testament was compiled, when it was gathered, chapter and verses were added for convenience, and that usually works pretty well. But as in other places, these first three verses we're looking at in chapter 12 today are clearly a continuation of chapter 11, which I hope was a great encouragement to you as you read about all those great 
uh, heroes of the faith. Hey, let me mention this about Hebrews. Hebrews uh, probably was a sermon before it was a letter. Aren't you thankful that your pastor doesn't preach as long as these early church pastors? Imagine sitting through the entire book of Hebrews this morning. Well, chapter 11 shows uh, that you read Friday, shows with great clarity that just as we come um, to salvation by faith, also we have to go on and live by faith if we're going to please God. Now, as I read through chapter 11, I thought about Paul's words to the Colossians in Colossians 2, 6, and 7. Paul uh, knew what it meant to live by faith. And this is what he said, just as you trusted Christ to save you, how did you trust him to save you? You came to him by faith. Just as you trusted him to save you, trust him too for each day's problems. When, when challenges come, you need to live the same way. You need to live by faith. Well, how does that happen? He says, live in vital union with him. Let your roots grow down into him and draw up nourishment from him. You got to be closely connected to your Savior, to your Lord. Let your roots grow down and draw up nourishment from him. See that you go on growing in the Lord and become strong and vigorous in the truth that you were taught. That, that's how we live by faith. So as we look at these examples of heroes in chapter 11 who lived out their faith, then when we come to this instruction in chapter 12, 1 through 3, about how we follow in their footsteps, read with me in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And you can see this is a concluding statement of chapter 11 because of the connection there with the word therefore. Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Now, let's start with the witnesses. What, what witnesses, who are these witnesses that have just been uh, reviewed in chapter 11? You've probably heard this particular section of Hebrews taught before as I have, and typically when you hear uh, the, great, the picture of the great cloud of witness, typically it's described this way. The athlete comes into the, the stadium or into the arena, and the stands are filled with all these witnesses who are, are cheering, uh, watching as the athlete runs and cheering and rooting him on. And, and it's explained that these are the saints who have lived before us, and they're now in heaven, and somehow they're watching us here on earth. People in heaven are probably not watching what's happening here on earth. Maybe you've had a loved one die and you've heard a statement like this, well, now Aunt Ethel will be watching over us from heaven. That's, that's just not taught in Scripture. You don't see anywhere in Scripture where people in heaven are observing what's happening here on earth. Heaven, heaven is a place uh, separated from all the sin and strife. And those who have gone on before us are so caught up in the wonder and so caught up in the, in the majesty and the joy in heaven, they're lost in all that, and they're not likely glancing back here. There's no indication, no place in Scripture that teaches that there are windows or, or portals in heaven that allow them to look back here. As far as we know, the saints in heaven have no connection to the things or, or people on earth. And, and I make that point not to discourage you if you've always sought that, but to point out here what the writer of Hebrews is saying about these witnesses, these witnesses 
are not here or not there in that stadium to watch and cheer us on. They're not there to witness what we are doing. We are to witness what they have done, how they live by faith and how God blessed them and how God used them because they were people of faith. Their lives testify to us of the value of trusting God no matter the hardships we face. They're active witnesses. They're speaking to us. They're not, they're not passive witnesses who are, are watching us, but they're speaking to us by example. And so these witnesses he refers to, we're, we're to observe them. They're experts who would tell us that their experiences testify to the faithfulness of God. And so what he's saying is you need to remember the heroes of the faith who have gone before you. Not only these in chapter 11, you need to remember other faith heroes you've known. Maybe a parent, maybe a grandparent, maybe a a former pastor or a Sunday school teacher or, or a missions leader, people that you know that you've watched walk by faith. So here's the picture of these witnesses. As you're lining up for your race, for your event, or as you're running, someone who's already completed the race comes alongside you and and says, look, I I know you're nervous right now facing this challenge. I I know the thoughts and the feelings. I've been right where you are. I know know that you even feel like giving up. You, You think you can't do this, but I'm here to testify to you. You can. And you can win. And in Christ, you're strong enough. Almost 20 years ago, when Jason Miller was a much younger man, he convinced me to start going to the gym and working out. I had never done that before. I was 40 years old, had never worked out before. He convinced me to go to the gym and work out, so I would go. Uh, Jason, don't mess with him. He's strong, okay? I'll never forget being at the gym one day, and I was struggling. I was, I was doing bench press, and I was struggling. I, I don't know how much weight was on there. It was probably nothing but the bar, but I, I could hardly pick it up. And I'll never forget Jason leaning over where he could look me in the eyes. He said, hey, buddy, I'm not trying to discourage you. I'm trying to encourage you here. There's a woman a couple of benches over that's lifting more than you are. <laughs> now, out of fairness... I sat up and looked over, and that didn't look much like a woman to me. Just saying. Am I right? Yeah. But these witnesses are encouraging us, and the primary command here in verse 1 to every believer is run the race. It's it's a metaphor for living life as a believer, for, for going on in faith. Now, undoubtedly, the race is going to require great effort. It's not a sprint, it's a marathon. You know, I'm proud of myself. At the age of 59, I can still outrun every one of my kids for maybe 50 yards. After that, they can catch me. It's not a sprint. It's, it's a marathon. You know what the Greek word for race is? Agona. What does that sound like in English? Agony. That's what he's saying. It's agony. It's difficult. It's a challenge. You have to be disciplined. You, you have to train if you're going to run the race. And and a runner who truly wants to win is going to do whatever is necessary to to be in shape, to be able to endure, to make it to the finish line. He's going to do whatever it takes if he really wants to do well in the race. What does he say? Run with endurance. The Greek word endurance has two parts. One part is to remain, and the other part is under. To have endurance, to run the race with endurance, means that you're going to remain under 
under the difficulty. There is going to be difficulty. It's, it's a hard race. You're going to remain under the challenge. You're, you're not going to give up when the challenge or the difficulty comes along. No matter how weary, no matter how tired you get, you're going to press on in this race. Now, can I tell you, and it, it doesn't say this here in the Scripture, but I can tell you from experience, as you know from experience, that as you look along the race course, there are often other witnesses those who didn't endure and they didn't finish well. And you can look uh, on the sidelines and see that there's just a, a littering of those who have stumbled and those who have crashed, those who gave up, those who either chose to exit the race or were, were forced out of the race. So what he's saying here is, listen, you need to look at those who have run well. You need to be encouraged. Don't think there's some kind of superheroes or just like me and just like you. You need to be encouraged that you can do the same if you just won't give up. You're going to get tired. You're going to get weary, but you can continue to run the race by faith, and you can run, and you can finish well. You know, for several years here, we've done a, a race called uh, Run with the Sun. It's just a, a 5K, 3.2 miles, starts here at the church, goes down to Pulaski Tech, makes a loop, comes back around the back of the church, and back to the front to the finish line. And I believe it was the last one that we did a couple of years ago. About the time I came up the access road and got to that steep hill coming back up toward the church, I was done. Hadn't done any training that year, hadn't been running much. I was done. And about the time I was slowing to start walking, Kent Sanders pulled up alongside me. Kent's a marathon runner. But Kent, although he could have gone right on and finished the race, Kent pulled up alongside me, and he stayed with me up the hill, around the parking lot, all the way to the front, stayed with me the whole way, encouraging me. Come on, man, you got this. You can do this. We're close. You can finish. That's the picture he's giving here of these witnesses. And let me, let me stop here and say, that's not only what encourages us, that's exactly what we need to be doing for one another. When you see a, a fellow believer running the race and they're, they're about to pull up or things are getting difficult and they're tired and they think they can't make it, you've got to pull up alongside them and encourage them to keep running. Look at what he says. If you're going to run well, what do you have to do? You've got to start well. He says you need to lay aside every weight and every sin. In, in the first century A.D., which is during the time the book of Hebrews was written, when a, when a runner came into the stadium or into the Colosseum to run a race, typically when those runners came in, they had on these beautiful, long, flowing robes. But they didn't run in those robes. If a runner tried to run in those robes, it would hinder his stride, and it would cause resistance, and it, it might cause him to stumble, and it would certainly add weight. You know, if you're running to win, if you are, are, are competing, you get rid of, as a runner, you get rid of as much excess body weight as possible. You have to lose the bulk and, and lose the fat because you don't want to carry that. I've got all my uh, bibs from about the seven years of Run With The Sun, and I've written all the times on them, and I've saved them. And, and there's one particular year that I had my best time ever because between the previous year and that year, I had lost 25 pounds. And you could go through and look at all those times and instantly pick out the year that was the best time ever because I wasn't carrying all that weight. Now stop looking at me and judging me, okay? 
All right, what, what is the weight? What is he saying? Well, if you look at that and you first read that, lay aside the weight, you would think he's probably talking about sin, but you notice he says weight and sin. It's two separate problems or two separate hindrances. So what is the weight? The weight is anything that causes you to lose focus, to hold you back from going out. It's distractions. It, it could be your ambitions, your anxieties. It could be a, a hobby you have that consumes you all the time. It could be pursuing wealth and materialism. It could be desire for fame, popularity. Anything that you're putting before your relationship with Christ, it causes you to lose focus and keeps you from going all out. That's the weight. And he says, lay aside the weight and the sin. Well, what's the sin? The writer of the Hebrews was referring to a particular sin in their lives. It was the sin of disbelief or the sin of doubt. You remember that if you go back to chapter 3, he, he tells him, he uses a story of the Israelites in the wilderness wandering before they went in to conquer the land. And he said, don't be like them. Don't harden your heart. Don't respond in rebellion. What happened? Well, they get to Meribah, and they begin complaining about their food and complaining about their water, and they're doubting that God is going to be able to provide for them. They get to Kadesh Barnea when they're supposed to go in from there and possess the land, and two spies came back and said, we can. Ten came back and said, came back and said we can't. And the people turned back. They turned away. They shrunk back in fear. And he tells them, don't act in disbelief or doubt. Don't shrink back. Don't harden your heart like they did. You say, well, how does that relate to us today? Do you know that the root of every sin is unbelief? Think about that. Go back to the garden where sin started. What's the problem? Eve did not believe that God had their best interest at heart. God had told them what it would take to live in this place of paradise. They would be completely joyful, completely fulfilled. But she thought God was holding back. She thought there was a better way. She didn't believe that God had their best interest at heart. When we sin, we haven't believed God. Typically when we sin, we're looking to gratify ourselves in some way, ignoring the fact that God has told us that's not going to work. And we just decide that we know better. It's as if we're, we're saying to God, sin, sin is a doubt, and it causes us to say to God, hey, this is what I want. I know what you have said, God, but I don't believe that's true. I'm going to do it my way. And so we have the same sin problem addressed to the Hebrews here. It's a failure to believe God or a failure to trust God, and certainly we can't expect that we're going to run the race well, that we won't be hindered by sin. Lay aside every weight and sin, look what the next phrase, and run with, run the race with endurance, the race that is set before us. What does that mean? It means the race course is the race marked out by God. Your race is planned by God. It's not accidental. It's not coincidental. You've heard me refer often to Ephesians 2.10, which is kind of my, my life verse. In Ephesians 2.8 and 9, Paul says, we're saved by grace through faith. It's not a result of works that no one should boast. So he explains how we're saved. And then he tells why we're saved in verse 10. We are his workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. It's the same idea you get from Psalm 139, 16, where the psalmist says, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be, before you and I were even conceived of in, in our parents' thoughts, before we were ever at, at the point of conception in our mother's womb, God had already planned out and set the course for our lives. Now, clearly, that makes it obvious that you can't run to win if you don't trust God who himself set out the course for you. Run the race that is set before us. Look at verses 2 and 3. The writer now points us to our example. Yes, the cloud of witnesses in verse 1 is the example, but they point to the ultimate example, and that is whom? Jesus. He says, looking to Jesus. The Greek word for looking is an undistracted focus. It means you're looking and not allowing your attention to be diverted. It means you're looking away from everything else and only looking to Jesus. You know, listen, any competitive runner can tell you that when you're running the race, you have to be careful where your focus is. You can't look at the ground in front of you. You can't look at your feet. You better not be turning around looking at the other runners to see where they are. What do you do? You focus on the finish. By the way, he mentions that in the race we have to have endurance because we're under stress, we're under pressure. I want you to think about a race that has hurdles. I've never run hurdles, but I've read a little bit about running hurdles. I want you to think about a race that has hurdles, and that'll help us get this picture of the importance of, of focus. If you're running hurdles, you never look at the hurdle. You ever heard of the moth effect? You know what the moth effect is? Same thing happens in a race with hurdles. You don't ever look at the hurdle. If you look at the hurdle, as you're running toward the hurdle, you're going to get entangled in that hurdle. You're going to go under it, run into it. You're going to get tangled up with it. You don't look at the hurdle. You look over and above the hurdle. If we're going to run well, our focus has to be above the hurdles, above the difficulties. It has to be on Jesus and not the challenges. So he tells us to look to Jesus, look, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith, the founder. He's, he's the author. He's the source. He's the, the, the pathfinder. He's the trailblazer. He's the perfecter. He's the perfect model. Not only is he a perfect model, but he can perfect our faith. He can bring our faith to completion. You remember in, in, in Hebrews 11, as you began to read about the heroes of the faith, in verse 6 it says, without faith it is impossible to do what? Please God. Jesus is the one who can perfect our faith. He had perfect faith. It started, you saw it first in the temptation in the wilderness. He had perfect faith. He had perfect faith all through his life, through the rejection and scorn and humiliation of the cross. What is he saying? Listen, look at Jesus, model his faith, draw on his strength. Look what he says. Jesus would not let the shame, the public disgrace, the suffering deter him from his goal, his focus his finish line was, look at it, the joy set before him. Well, what, what was the joy set before him? I think it was two things. I think the joy set before him was he was able to see past the cross to the goal of being seated at the right hand of the Father. He knew what was coming. He knew what the end would be. He, he went through far worse than anything we will ever endure, and he kept his eye on the goal. Do you know that we also 
will be seated with him on his throne. Revelation 3.21, he said as he's addressing the churches to him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with the Father on his throne. The joy set before him was he kept his eye on the goal, on the end game, on the goal line. I also believe the joy that enabled him to endure was his incredible love for us. Even from the cross, being able to look down through all of time and history and see every one of us and know that we are dead, were dead in sin, and we were without hope apart from him. You remember what Paul's words were to the Romans in Romans 5 and verse 8, that God demonstrated his love for us in this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. His joy was to be able to look and see that while we were yet sinners, because he's willing to die for us, there was the opportunity for us to be restored. His joy was the prospect that his death would save us from eternal death. It would restore us to right relation with the Father. It would enable us to live a victorious life, to finish the course. We were and we are his joy and his focus. So the writer of Hebrews has said we need to focus on Christ. We need to follow Christ. We need to finish in Christ. That's the only way that we're going to be able to cross that finish line in, in victory. And that's the good news this morning. As we face the challenges, as we run the race, as we go through the hardship and the, and the difficulties in the course of that race, the good news this morning is that God will enable us to triumph in Christ. That's what Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 2.14. God will cause you to triumph in Christ. Reward is coming. Reward is coming. And with that in mind, we're exhorted to run the race and to run to win. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. Full of difficulties, full of challenges. But if we put our eyes on Jesus and remember what he has done for us, it's easier to make the necessary sacrifices. If we put our eyes on Jesus, remember what he's done for us, we'll want to set aside every weight and, and, and sin and we'll want to run with unwavering faith, and we will want to gain our eternal reward. Run with endurance the race that is set before us, a race, a course determined by God for us that we are able to win if we have an unwavering focus and hope and faith, and if we're willing to pay the price, because it is a price, we can receive the price.